Um, right, so good morning to you all here today and those listening uh, online. Um, it's great to have everyone here and uh, see a lot of the young people with us again this morning. Um, I've had a bit of a rough couple of days physically with a little bit of drainage and some headaches, so if I cough a little bit this morning, I'm not contagious. <laughs> um, it's just me trying to get over something um, with my sinuses and allergies and um, et cetera and so on. Um, one other quick bit of an announcement. Um, this is the kind of uh, message I thought this morning that lends itself to some prayerful reflection at the end. So I just want to warn you at the end, instead of dropping a bombshell on you at the end, uh, we're, we're going to take a time at the end of this message, if the Lord leads that way, to uh, just have a time of quiet reflection about prayer with, with the Lord um, before um, we, we go on in the service. I guess I was thinking of this because July is a, uh, it's always a very reflective, uh, emotional month for me. It's a significant month for me. Uh, I got saved in July, 45 years ago. Um, to use the language of the King James Bible, uh, I was separated from the authority of darkness and translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. That was 45 years ago. And um, not only that, it's a reflective time for me because uh, July is the year of my physical birthday. And above and beyond all that, I had a sudden and dramatic conversion to Christ in Southern California, living like a hermit, uh, and I won't go into all that, but um, uh, it was over a two or three day event, and as I thought about it afterwards, a day or two later, I thought, oh, that happened on or around my birthday. So it's a strange time for me, July, and I often take time to reflect on it. But one of the things that I've discovered, or learned rather, over the years uh, in the 45 years I've been following the Lord is um, uh, well, a lot of things. But the one thing I wanted to talk about Detroit, or today, which is significant to me, is um, uh, our unity in Christ. Our unity in Christ. That's something I've really learned over the decades and what it means to follow Jesus. Um, there's one thing that I've learned about our unity in Christ over those decades. Our unity in Christ is not about our theology, our political beliefs, our economic status, what color of our skin, what nation we belong to, what ethnicity, or anything like that. Our unity in Christ is about the unity in God that Jesus talks about in John 17, which we'll look at in a minute. It's, that, is, that is the dynamic, if you will, that holds us all together, all the wild and wonderful kinds of people we are in the body of Christ, in the church of Christ. Um, hey, it doesn't even matter what denomination you belong to or whether you're Baptist or Catholic or Orthodox or Charismatic or Pentecostal or even Presbyterian. <laughs> um, present company accepted, no. Um, but I began learning about this uh, unity early on in my life. I've had a kind of unusual Christian calling. I won't go into all that there, but um, I was blessed to be around a lot of different kinds of Christians early on in my Christian life. Uh, in many different contexts, both here in the States and overseas. It began when I worked as a volunteer for the Billy Graham organization in 1976 at a, at a big uh, evangelistic event for several weeks in the pre-evangelism office during the 
evangelistic event for nine or ten days and then afterwards. Um, then it happened when I was called a few months later into the inner city of Detroit uh, where I lived in the full-time ministry uh, for a year and served there. Uh, we, the black and white single guys lived in one building. The single girls and married couples lived in another building. And uh, we just served in the inner city there. We did all sorts of work. And uh, I met all kinds of people. It was like they were from everywhere, from all walks of life, serving the Lord. We had one goal, our unity in Christ, to try to serve the inner city. Um, then I moved to Scotland to marry an American gal who's sitting here today, who was a missionary there, who co-founded a preschool there, uh, Linda Stromer, an excellent educator. If you want to talk to her later, she'll talk your ear off, but she's got good things to say always. Um, <laughs> she shakes her head. Oh, okay. I, I always have to embarrass her at least once, you know, during the sermon. Um, but there were YWAMers from all over Europe there that we worked with, and we had one thing in common, our unity in Christ to serve that region. Um, then afterwards, I, when I moved back to the States, um, I, uh, for some reason the Lord opened up a door for me to fly back to the UK many times on ministry trips where I found myself in all sorts of denominations and all sorts of contexts, colleges, parachurch organizations, missionary organizations, all kinds of churches, and I was gobsmacked, as the Brits would say, uh, to discover, uh, great word, isn't it? Uh, you know, it really fits. It's like uh, uh, all these different people, you know, wanting to minister to them and teach and preach in their churches and have small group meetings with them. We were all united in what we were doing for Christ for their city or their community. It was amazing. And finally, and I'll just shut up about this in a minute here, but the... Um, uh, my ordination was even unusual. Uh, so I was living in Tennessee, uh, part of Evergreen Church here, uh, but my ordination was in Detroit, just outside of Detroit, where my pastor had arranged for my, up there had arranged for my ordination. Now, it was an independent Baptist church, and, so, and it was an odd ordination. You know, John Peck came over from England. He's a Baptist minister. And my oral exam was really bizarre <laughs> because... Uh, uh, at this oral exam was uh, uh, John Peck, uh, who's a Baptist minister. There was uh, one charismatic guy, one Pentecostal pastor. Uh, I think there was a Methodist pastor. There was the pastor of the Independent Baptist Church where I was ordained. And there was our own Randy Davis who flew up from uh, here to be part of that ordination. And you can imagine what that was like being grilled by... <laughs> five or six different kinds of leaders, you know, about my funda the fundamentals of my faith. But we all, ended, at the end of the day, ended up united in Christ. And um, here I am today. So anyways, um, those personal experiences, I just wanted to share those because especially for those of you who are younger here today, you're, you don't know where you're going <laughs> in the future. Uh, you really don't, where Christ is going to lead you. And you might have all kinds of experiences. Just remember that your unity is in Christ, whoever you meet, whoever you go to be among and minister to. Um, there's only one thing that fundamentally unites the church, and that's Jesus Christ. The thing is, you see, we live in a world where there's all kinds of competing and conflicting uh, ideas. They're powerful and compelling. 
they're on offer to us as a church, as Christians, and they're competing for that ultimate preeminence in our lives and in our churches uh, that only Jesus Christ has. And sometimes we get burned by these ideas, so I thought we'd look at our unity in Christ this morning and some of these things. I want to begin with um, just reading a few verses out of John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this over the years, and I thought it would be a good one to look at this morning, just briefly, and then we'll move on to a couple other passages. Um, Jesus' high priestly prayer, as it's often called in John 17, can really be divided into three parts. Jesus said in the first part, he prays for himself to the Father, and then he prays for the 12 who have been with him, the 12 apostles who have been with him um, for three, three plus years, and then he prays for the church, that is to say those who would become uh, members of his body through their preaching in the book of Acts and on through history. Um, here's what he prays after he's done praying for himself. I'm just going to read a few verses here and then we'll comment on them as we go along. Jesus says, I pray for them, that is for the 12 that have been with him for three years. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Pay attention to that phrase. And glory has come to them. I'm sorry, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them. Pay attention to that as well. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was in the world, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have a full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then he switches to be praying for us, the church. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity that, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In praying for the church's unity like that, what Jesus is revealing, if we look underneath the skin of that, he's, he's really revealing the unity um, of the church and praying that they may be one as we are one. He's revealing the basis of the church's unity. And I'll get this, it's the unity of God. It's the oneness of God that he's talking about there. Um, you can use either word, unity, oneness. The Trinity in three persons, it's in that 
unity that we are part of Christ. <laughs> Who, you know, and that's how we get our unity. It's an amazing thing you think about. When you think about it, it's a, our unity is in a person <laughs> with a capital P, not in a set of ideas. It's, it's quite amazing, actually, when you work that through. Um, and so then he prays uh, that as followers of Jesus, what happens? Well, we're left in the world. I don't know why we're left in the world other than the fact that we're to be witnesses of Christ. Why doesn't he take us? We used to ask when we were young Christians, why doesn't he take us right to heaven? You know, Because he's got work to do in the world, right? Um, I look at the world as an adverse environment. So Jesus is praying for their protection and preservation in an adverse environment. You know, that becomes the focus of his prayer. They are in the world. Uh, I do not, do not ask that you take them out of the world, um, but he prays to the Father for the church's protection and environment in the world, in that adverse environment, the place where, among many other things, there's powerful principalities and powers of darkness that ever seek to disconnect the church from its unity in the person of Jesus Christ. So, you know, this is not a prayer uh, for the church to be taken out of the world. It's not a prayer of escape. <clears throat> it's not an escape route. It's a prayer for protection in adverse environments around us, which include many of these many and diverse powerful ideas that seek to divide us and pull us apart. I think Jesus prays for our protection from these things because he knows our weaknesses. He knows that living in the world and being his witnesses are gonna be, it's going to be tough. Um, you know, we're, we're easily... Um, the things that we do, the things we think, the actions we take, the behaviors we make, they're easily compromised by the, what I call the worldly baggage that we bring, in, bring to Jesus. Um, he, you know, they, 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 they got to be renewed. Our desires, our worldly desires have to be taken away from us and transformed. And if we're not careful, not alert, we can start to fall prey from some of those. I think this gives us a clue, by the way, of why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, writes, I urge you, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Make every effort to live in the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you were called. So as I was preparing this message, I thought a question before us today is uh, simply but profoundly, has glory come to Jesus through our witness in and to the world? Has glory come to Jesus through our witness in and to the world? Have we been the kind of witnesses we ought to be about our unity in Christ? Have we fallen prey to subtle temptations to seek our unity around powerful sets of ideas, paradigms, if you will, be they political, economic, racial, national, or whatever? Have we divided ourselves into all sorts of different camps of opposition, <clears throat> if not physically in our churches, then perhaps in our minds toward one another? I'd like us to take a minute to see how Jesus handled this with the 12 apostles that we've been talking about. I'm just going to read to you a, a short passage. It's a list. 
You ever read lists in the Bible? I used to dislike reading the, the uh, list of genealogies and chronicles. You know, they seem so boring, but every once in a while you run into a, uh, yeah, somebody gets this. You, you run into a, uh, uh, a passage like uh, in Second Chronicles 17, I think it is, where it says, uh, um, the sons of Issachar, they knew the times and the seasons. I used to pray that prayer for myself. You know, there's these little vignettes. Matthew 10, here's a short list. He called Jesus, called the 12 disciples to him. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and elsewhere he's called Cephas, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the IRS agent, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So there's the fishermen, there's four fishermen, a tax collector, a religious or political zealot, a fellow who doesn't seem to have much faith at all, a thief, and so on and so forth. I don't know if you've ever done this, but I want to suggest this in a Bible study for yourself over a few-week period of time. Just run through the, the narratives in the four Gospels in which these guys interact with Jesus or the crowds and the things they say. It's very, very enlightening. Um, you know, come to your own conclusions, you know, what they were up to and what they believed and the baggage they brought with them. I'll tell you the one conclusion that I came to, and I've had this conclusion for a while because I've looked at these guys quite a bit over the years. It's fascinating to me. This is the one conclusion I think that we can take away, if nothing else, from, this, from these 12 guys. Jesus did not choose 12 guys who were friends. He did not choose 12 guys who were friends. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive to us today. I mean, if we were starting to, if we wanted to create a following, <laughs> what would we do? We'd collect everybody that thought like we did, right? You know, Jesus doesn't do that. It's counterintuitive uh, to what we would typically do today. Um, it's interesting, too, when I was preparing this message, that for the first time I had a chance to watch some episodes of The Chosen. How many of you have seen episodes of The Chosen? Quite a few of you, yeah. I was going to actually spend quite a bit of time with us this morning uh, with The Chosen, with The Twelve, talking about how The Chosen handled them because it's quite brilliant. Um, they, the director, the writer, the acting, it's well acted, it's well written. Those of you that haven't seen any episodes of The Chosen, I really recommend that you take a look at some of the episodes, you really begin to see there just how tense and divided these 12 guys were as they're walking around the hillsides and of, of Galilee and in the cities and towns of Judea. Uh, it's really brought out, I mean, I've, I've been studying the Bible pretty much full time for 45 years and uh, called to teach and look in a lot of books that, you know, most people aren't called to read. But um, reference books, textbooks, um, somebody's laughing. You know me, Larry. <laughs> so um, Larry and I have had some good discussions about this, actually. I better shut up there on that one. No, I'm just going to say, ask him about the Jewish study Bible I turned him on to. 
Um, so, because um, I'm really an Old Testament guy, you see. But, um, uh, oh, I'm going off now. Call in that divergency, Stromer, and keep going. The, um, um, yeah, I'm trying to figure this out here. Yeah, so they were, you know, the chosen really gets into the, um, what it was like for these fellows to go around with Jesus and all the baggage that they had. Um, I mean, Jesus didn't even choose 12 guys who thought like him, you know, let alone were friends. Um, and well, why, why not? You know, they, they were sinners. He was the Savior, you know. So um, if you haven't seen any episodes of The Chosen, I really want to recommend, uh, you know, that you view some. They're very enlightening. I was... Uh, Having studied the Bible for so many decades, sometimes it becomes kind of flat, and you have to kind of use your imagination to get into it, to try to figure out the narratives and stuff. Um, if I were a playwright or a screenwriter or something, I would do that a lot, and I have friends who are, and they've helped me. But um, the fellows who wrote and directed The Chosen have really done that. They've really brought these narratives alive for me. So maybe they'll do that for you too. And he was doing it to bring them together into his unity, to get rid of their baggage and bring them united in Christ. Sometimes I think our problem is that we've yet to discover that the unity Jesus calls us to is a unity in our diversity. After all, isn't God, God's kingdom comprised of tribes and peoples and nations and so on and so on? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, God seemed to decide on 12 tribes. <laughs> And they were often pulling against each other. They even went to war with each other. They were substituting their own little ideas for the unity in God that they had. So I think part of the task of Christian discipleship is to understand that the church has a unity in our diversity. And another part of that task is to learn how to live that unity and diversity among ourselves in the church, in the world, for the glory of Jesus. It's hard work, yeah. Sure it is. But that's part of discipleship. The word discipleship, as you know, means a learner. And we're continually learning how to follow Jesus and be united in him as he calls all sorts of wild and wonderful sinners to follow him. We learn from his teaching, from him, and in the power of the Holy Spirit to be continually transformed along the way, how to shake off worldly desires in order to live out the, universe, the unity in our diversity that is the church that the world may know. The Apostle Paul had a profound um, understanding of a knowledge of our unity or oneness in Christ. In fact, for one church, the Corinthian church, his shepherd's heart was really grieved uh, to learn that that church in Corinth was trying to unite itself uh, around certain well-known men and their competing sets of ideas. It was a kind of foolishness that was, in fact, the main subject addressed by the Apostle Paul in that first letter to the Corinthians. And he pulled no punches uh, talking about it. I'll just read to you a few verses here. He was very direct with them. He even named names. Hmm. He starts in 1 Corinthians 1 by thanking God for the church, for their amazing gifts, for the things that they're doing in Corinth, this and that and the other thing. 
um, you know, and the testimony of Christ that's being confirmed in them and et cetera and so on. So he starts by encouraging them. He has apostolic oversight of some sort over that church. So he's writing to them and he's heard some good things about him, but he's also heard some bad things about him. So he writes, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, my sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I am of Paul. One of you says, I am of Apollos. Another, another says, I follow Jesus. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And he goes on after that. But he names names. He's very blunt with them. Now, I want to call our attention to just two words there briefly, the words divisions and contentions. They're very strong words in the Greek. Uh, division here is the Greek word schisma, from where we get schism, or English word schism. It's the same word that appears in John's Gospel to describe schisms between some of the Pharisees about who the person of Jesus was. The word contention in that passage is another strong Greek word, not unlike the meaning of schisma. Some popular translations, like the NIV that I just read from, use the word quarrels. But I'd argue that's a little bit unfortunate because in the Greek, the word, the word has meanings of strifes, rivalries, and factions. Um, today, we use words like sectarian and partisan. So Paul's using strong language to admonish that church about what's happened to them, and they know it. They know that strong language. He even names names. I mean, I can hear Paul saying, Christians, wake up. <laughs> You've become sectarian. What in the world are you doing? And that's the problem. They're doing it, what in the world they're doing, not what in the kingdom they're doing. You are becoming sectarian in your thinking, creating schisms in your body. I've looked closely at this passage, and it seems to me that, you know, you kind of get the sense that the Corinthians either didn't uh, seem to notice what was occurring, or they didn't care much about it, or if they did, they kind of seemed kind of proud of it. But Paul's got to call them to account. He must make them aware that the body of Christ cannot be divided. There's a curious passage there, too. Some of you say, I am of Christ. I thought a lot about this over the years. And um, apparently there was one group there that thought, well, we're not of Paul or of Apollos, et cetera, and so on. We're of Christ, so we're good. Apparently that group thought that being organized or around Christ or was, was, was good enough. That was all we needed. Now, I'm not stupid. I understand that there is a, a, a fundamental reason that we only need Christ for salvation and other kinds of related graces. But when it comes to the body of Christ, uh, you really can't read Paul's epistles to realize that it's ridiculous to think that we're not united in a body in Christ, right? I mean, it's everywhere in his epistles, not just later on here in Corinthians. So I think what, you know, he's saying there is be careful. You may think you only need Jesus, 
be careful. You only, you know, what? Watch television, Christian television programs. Be careful. You only, you know, go on and on and on here. Be careful. You only come to church on Christmas and Easter. Be careful. You know, you need more than that. You need the body. So to get that point across to them, Paul takes them through a rather sophisticated argument about the cross of Christ as being the only fundamentally uniting dynamic or principle in the entire universe. And then he returns to his admonition in chapter 3. Just to remind them, in case they forgot where he was at, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Hmm. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like men? For one of you says, I, am, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus. Are you not acting as men? What, after all, is Apollos, or what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned each his task. Of course, schisms and factions have always been part of God's body, God's people. Uh, long before the time of Christ and the apostles, God's people formed sects and factions around which they tried to unite everybody. I am of Korah. I am of Absalom. I am of the northern tribes. I am of the southern tribes, and so on. Those are the kind of dynamics in his day that Jesus is confronting head-on with the 12 year after year. Just reflect for a while on conversations like he had, shocking <laughs> Uh, the apostles, when he went into Samaria and talked to the Samaritan woman, or as, you know, the Syrophoenician woman, or lepers, or his meals with, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes and other kinds of sinners. So, where are we at today, church? Hmm. Um, well, of course, as Christians, we're called to good works, and we do good works, and that has certainly been the church's witness in the world over two millennium, including in our time. Of course, sometimes you never know that. All you read is the news. The um, world doesn't like the church so much a lot. You know, but we preach the gospel. We care for the poor and the elderly. We, we um, you know, support missionary initiatives. We work for justice. We love our neighbors. We love our enemies and so much more. But don't we see that today God is shaking the nation's big time, including America, and he's shaking the church in America. I really don't know how Jesus figures out how to deal with the church between the good and bad that it does. I'm glad I'm <coughs> glad I'm excuse me, not in those councils. But in America today, I think he's dealing with big sets of powerful ideas and compelling ideas. I call them ologies and isms. There's dozens of these things. They exacerbate long-standing contentions and divisions 
and schisms in the culture, and they are making their deep inroads into the polity of our churches. Why do they do that? Well, our churches, you know, we let our, we let our guard down. We brought them in. We, we're responsible. They, you can't blame other people for the divisions in the church. We're in the church. If we don't know how to handle that stuff, then we better get closer to Jesus. And they've gained strength, and they divide us. And so we need to identify what those are and repent. I've been wondering about this lately, about how much we were on our knees before God to consider what these sectarian agendas in the Church of Christ are doing in the church to our witness in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't hold the political beliefs or stop voting or not be a part of a church and things like that. It's not to suggest that we should quit praying or consulting with mature leaders to make wise decisions for ourselves and our families about how to negotiate with grace and wisdom through this still difficult season as God is shaking things up all around us in all aspects of our lives and in our churches. It is to say that well-known personalities and their competing ideas and organizations have brought all sorts of powerfully compelling um, paradigms, if you will, ideologies, isms, uh, into our midst today in, the, in America during the last 12 years in particular in this country. And these competing paradigms, they take on such a dominant proportion of our lives that we can become sectarian in our thinking and hardly even notice, notice it because it seems so normal. We may even start running our churches that way. Shame on us. Shame on us. I recently read a short editorial in a Christian magazine about debates in the American church over major issues such as Black Lives Matter, responses to the pandemic, the 2020 election, and the January 6th uprising at the Capitol. The writer who was discussing how such debates played out over social media wrote that, quote, it became easier for Christians to segregate with those who shared their beliefs or even to switch churches. Can I be a little tough on us here? <laughs> no? Thank you. I had to get permission for this. I think I got permission for God, but you know, if it seemeth good to you and the Holy Spirit, then can't you almost hear the Apostle Paul admonishing the American church today? Saying in an epistle to us, somebody just said, yeah, I can. The Apostle Paul saying, do not some of you say, I am of Trump, I am of Biden, I am of the mask, I am not of the mask. I am of the prophets. I am not of the prophets. I am of CRT. I'm not of CRT. I am of socialism. I am of capitalism. And on and on and on it goes. One hardly knows which group to join. After all, there's so many of them, each with compelling, competing arguments that with force and vigor seek our allegiance to them to divide us. I can also hear Paul saying to the American church, people, Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican 
or a libertarian. Jesus is Lord of lords, King of kings, of a kingdom that is not of this world. Set your sights on that, on things above. So what sets of ideas have slowly become so dominant in our worldviews that however unintentionally it may be, it's led us away from our unity, our oneness in Christ. You're going to need to fill in your own blanks here as individuals, as I've been challenged to do over the past few years in my own life. I spoke a little bit about this in my last message here on the refiner's fire, so I won't um, reiterate that here. How consistently, I ask myself, and I ask you, are we participating in the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17? Has glory come to Jesus through our witness as an American church in and to the world around us? So I mentioned that we'll have a prayer of reflection and thinking about this as I close here. And what I'd like you to do now as I bring this talk to an end um, be thinking about what the Holy Spirit may be thinking to you at this time, at this moment. I want us to take a few minutes of quiet personal ministry where you're at in your chairs. If you want to pray out loud, that's fine. Um, just reflect. Ask the Lord to show you, you know, where you're at in your lives at this time. Uh, whether you're a young person, middle-aged, older person like me, um, the Holy Spirit can speak to you. <clears throat> We've, you know, we here at Evergreen, uh, I want to commend you. Um, we've done pretty good the last year and a half or so. We haven't done perfectly well. Things have been tough at times. Um, it hasn't been easy. Um, but remember, Jesus prayed for us. Uh, we can do a little bit better, I think, uh, at our unity in Christ. Think about these things in your own lives as individuals, uh, as a local body here, as, uh, as a church, how can our unity in Christ be more effectual in this community, in our communities, in our businesses, in, in, you know, on social media, wherever we happen to be? Um, it's a path we're on, folks. <laughs> we're never off the path. Paul, at the end of his life, is saying, you know, I haven't even arrived yet. <laughs> if he can say that, how much more should we? It's about the transformation of our desires, really. And that's, in a nutshell, uh, is what takes place. Just to mention it again, is what the fellows that wrote and produced The Chosen are trying to do. Show how the disciples' desires were changed. And they got rid of their worldly desires and began to follow the desires of Jesus and be changed. Let's take a few minutes of quiet, and uh, then I'll close in prayer. Lord, we ask you to soften our hearts and wherever we need repentance in our own lives, that you would grant us that mercy and grace. And so we have come with confidence and boldness to your throne of grace, Lord, which you have established for your children, that we may obtain grace, mercy, and grace to help in our time of need. And every day in this world for your children is a time of great need, Lord. And so we pray in Christ's name. Thank you for your love for us and for calling us to the only true unity, 
the unity in Jesus, who is the way, the everlasting way for the everlasting unity.